This is probably one of the most well-known psalms in the world. I mentioned I was preaching this psalm to a couple of people who I have come in contact with over the last two weeks, and both of them that I talk to extensively don't go to a Bible-believing church, yet both of them quoted substantial parts of the psalm to me. One of them, I had the privilege of sharing the gospel with her on the airplane back from California. I hope she's watching. She knew the psalm, but when asked if she knew where she was going when she died, she said, I'm not sure. Yet she could quote this psalm, Psalm 23. It is a well-known psalm, but it is often not... A well-applied psalm. It's one we know with our heads, but we don't apply it very well. I would imagine it has been quoted and read in thousands, if not millions of funerals for the last 2,000 years. Yet I bet many of the people who had this psalm read at their funerals did not apply the psalm to their own heart before they died. Just reading it brings great comfort to people who truly know the God of the Bible, especially when we are in trials. For the last two weeks, I've had the great privilege of studying this psalm, and everything I thought of the psalm has only grown. It is truly one of the finest pieces of poetry ever written. Not because the Hebrew poetry rhymes perfectly or sounds especially soothing, And also not because the structure is perfectly crafted to be balanced. But what makes this psalm so amazing is its content. It's the truth revealed in the psalm that makes this psalm one everyone should memorize and meditate on regularly. It's one of those that I am now going to put in my back pocket and I will bring out regularly. It is one of those that we all need to memorize and meditate on and apply daily. Do you ever get discouraged? Do you ever find yourself in some situations that appear to be impossible? Do you ever just need to be encouraged by God? Do you ever find yourself complaining and grumbling about your circumstances? It doesn't matter how small the trial These words from Psalm 23 should be meditated and applied to our hearts in difficult times. Today I'm confident as this psalm is unfolded to you that you will be able to be greatly encouraged by the truth revealed in it. All of us who have repented and trusted in the one true God will receive a giant spiritual hug from our sovereign shepherd today. Yes, Yet also, it will call us to trust in God as David did, as recorded in this psalm. The psalm is classified as a wisdom psalm. Wisdom psalms often start with an introductory statement or declaration of truth. And then this declaration is the foundation of the rest of the psalm. And often it is grounds for worship that results within the psalm from the psalmist as he begins to proclaim it. You see this with David in Psalm 23. He he starts out and he says, 
He makes some amazing statements about God. And then by the time he is halfway through the psalm, David begins to directly address God in worship over the truths being revealed in the, the psalm. To kind of illustrate this, it would be something like this. If I was saying, God is good. He is powerful. He is almighty. He is all-knowing. He is so kind. Wow, you, God, are really amazing. You are beyond my comprehension. Your worth is beyond my measure. In other words, did you notice I said truths, 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 and then I went, you! It's as if the truth becomes so overwhelming in the psalmist's heart that he begins to worship and acknowledge God directly. This is what happens in the psalm. The psalmist's introductory statement is found in verse 1. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Everybody knows the verse, right? With this, the psalmist literally heralds the covenant-keeping God of Israel named Yahweh. He states Yahweh is his own personal shepherd. The psalm structure is not easy to figure out. I would argue the structure of the psalm was not primarily on David's mind as the Spirit worked through him to record it. We will see that you really can't find the break because, like I said, in the middle of it, he begins to worship. And it kind of makes the structure hard to find. But we will break down the psalm this way. The introduction to the sovereign shepherd's relationship is found in verse 1. There's an exaltation for his provision in verses 2 and 3. Trust in his protection in verse 4. Delight in his preservation in verse 5. And the conclusion to the sovereign shepherd's relationship is found in verse 6. Not really complicated, but great truths here. So let's start with the declaration of truth in the introduction of the psalm. Literally, this could be translated, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. With these words, the sovereign shepherd is introduced. David uses God's name, Yahweh. This is the name of the triune God. It's mentioned over 6,000 times in the Old Testament part of the Bible alone. It is the name that the Jewish people began to avoid saying for wrong reasons. They changed it to the Lord and it's stuck with us. That's why you see the Lord is my shepherd instead of Yahweh is my shepherd. Ultimately, these Jews were afraid to say the name for they thought that they would defile the name by saying it. All of this arose from a works righteousness mindset in these Jews. But this was God's name from the beginning. In fact, it is revealed in the first book of the Bible. No, yes, and Genesis, but that's not the first book written. Job. Genesis has the name Yahweh, but Job was most likely written even before Moses penned Genesis. And Job uses the name Yahweh from the very beginning in the very first book written. Notice in Job 21.21 it says, After his trial, remember the first trial? He rips his clothes and says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord, that is Yahweh, gave, and the Lord, that is Yahweh, has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. 
He is the covenant-keeping, loyal-loving God. Notice this in the Hebrew. I usually don't do this, but I've been studying Hebrew so much I had to share it with you. It's fun. See if it shows up. Okay, when you read Hebrew, you read left or right to left. Right to left. And that uh, on the right there is name. And then the next one is Yahweh. Right here. This one right here. So, and if you did a transliteration, you can see it. Y, Yod, Hey, H, Va, H. Okay, so Yahweh. That's the name. But yet, it's changed in most Bibles to the Lord. You see it in your Bible? You look at it? Notice in your Bible? It has that little thing down there with Lord, and it's in small capital letters. Notice the difference here? Lord in small capital letters. It doesn't say it Lord with the little O, R, and D. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, that means Yahweh. That's his name. So David says, Yahweh is my shepherd. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, loyal, loving, self-existent God. He is my shepherd. Shepherd was also a title for the kings in Old Testament times. So David is calling God his sovereign shepherd or his shepherd king. Remember, David was a shepherd. Caring for sheep was a great training to be a king who would then shepherd people. But ultimately in this psalm, David was acknowledging God's authority as his shepherd here. He was saying, you are my shepherd king. Ultimately, you are the authority over me. In fact, this calls all of us to ask the question. When we look at Psalm 23, we all say, oh, this is so comforting. But the question is, is will we apply it the same way? Will we say, he's our shepherd king. Is he our sovereign shepherd? Who is your authority? To say God is your shepherd means that you know you are under the authority of Him as your shepherd. Is He your king? Is He your shepherd? means that you are willing to acknowledge you are what? Just a sheep. (laughs) Just one of the sheep. There's an obvious connection here with the New Testament, right? God is His shepherd. The Trinity is David's shepherd. And Jesus is God. So obviously it's not shocking that Jesus then calls himself the good shepherd in John chapter 10, verses 11 to 18. When he said, I am the good shepherd, everybody should have gone to the ground. Oh, that means you're God. Because that's what he was saying. Well, I don't believe Psalm 23 is a Direct allusion or prophecy of the Messiah. Obviously, it's the same God revealed in the Old and the New Testament, correct? There is only one God revealed, three persons, and He is the shepherd of His people. So when the Messiah arrives and says, I am the good shepherd, everybody says, oh, that makes sense. You're the God-man, so you're our shepherd. Christ's claim to be the good shepherd was a claim to deity. Only Yahweh is the good shepherd. David never called himself the good shepherd, did he? Only God is the good shepherd. David was a shepherd. David was a shepherd king. But he definitely was not a good shepherd. Especially as, a, as the totality of his life, correct? 
The intimacy of David's phrase, the Lord is my shepherd, is apparent. Not our shepherd, not the shepherd, but my shepherd. And again, there's this intimacy that's just beyond words. And I think often we get into this corporate concept of, oh, it's me and the group. And I'm okay because I'm with the group. Well, yes, that is good to be a part of the group. But ultimately, is he your personal shepherd? Stop thinking about anybody else, but is he your shepherd? Is he the one that is your master? Is he your leader? David says, he's my shepherd. David is using this metaphor, a word picture of a shepherd to explain Yahweh's care for him. Shepherds cared for their sheep, right? Shepherds give provisions. Shepherds give protection. Shepherds preserve their sheep. This is exactly what we see unfold in Psalm 23. Notice David's understanding of a sovereign shepherd moved David to acknowledge great confidence, with great confidence, God. He states this, I shall not want. I will not want. Literally, this could be translated, and you ought to write this down. This is amazing. I will never enter into the state of need. I will never even get in the state of need in my life, ever. That's how you could translate it. It's emphatic. This is an enormous amount of trust and confidence in God. We see here in these words of trust that the man after God's own heart is displayed and shown off, right? This same confidence appears... A confidence appears in every believer who knows God like David did. How much more, folks? How much more should we have this kind of confidence and trust in the Lord? This side of the cross and the resurrection and with the coming of the Holy Spirit and His indwelling presence, how much more confidence should we be able to say that, shouldn't we? We should be able to say that confidently. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. I will never enter into a state of need. Our commentator explained the words. One commentator, he says this about want or need. He says, quote, The focus of the word want is not so much on the idea of desiring something as much as on lacking something needed. It's not about what you desire. It's not about that. It's not about wants. David does not mean that God gives him everything he wants or desires. Instead, David means those who trust in Yahweh as their shepherd will never lack whatever they need. That's why I will never get in a state of lacking something that I need. It is not saying I will never get in the state of desiring something. Instead, it means I will have All I need. I will never need anything because God gives me exactly what I need always. What is that, ladies and gentlemen? That is a heart completely satisfied with God. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Is that us? I think all too often, I think we're more like the children of Israel. Wandering around in the desert, complaining about what we don't have. He 
He says, I have all I need. Do you have all that you need? What do we need? Ultimately, all we really need is God Himself. That's all we need. So to say the statement, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, makes sense. If He's His shepherd, then He has everything He needs. Ultimately, all we need is God. Jesus said this at his temptation, right? When Satan said to him, hey, and tempted him, turn those rocks into bread. He answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You know, if we have that kind of relationship with God, guess what? We have no needs, do we? None. Ultimately, all we need is God Himself, and thankfully God is always ready to give us Himself every second of the day. Now, God also provides our basic needs, as we will see. But ultimately, as you will see, David's responded to his awareness of God as his shepherd with total trust and reliance upon Him. I want to be like David. I want to have that kind of heart there. A man after God's own heart that trusts in God no matter what his circumstances. I have all I need. The sovereign shepherd is relied upon by those who know him. This is so crucial. We rely upon him. The Lord is my shepherd and I will never enter into the state of need. Can you say that statement? We've quoted it before. I'm fairly sure everybody could say it, right? You could all say it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let's do it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Okay, saying words, dictating words, means nothing to you unless you apply it. Can you say that statement? If we can't say this statement, there's one of two things wrong. One, we have a small understanding of God as our shepherd. Very small understanding. Or, we have a wrong definition of what we need. Do you get that? So now David begins to unfold his sovereign shepherd's care for him. And next we see three specific responses David gives to his awareness of God as his shepherd. Notice first, the exaltation for God's provision. In other words, David exalts God for his provision. He says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Notice David explains that his sovereign shepherd provides his basic needs. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside Quiet waters, waters of rest, as we will see. What does he mean by he makes me lie down in green pastures? This is a development of a metaphor that he is giving, the shepherd metaphor. In this case, a good shepherd would make sure the sheep had a place where they had enough grass that they could eat till they were full, and then they could lie down and rest before they ate again. And the idea is is he would find a good place, a great place, to literally eat and rest 
and eat again. That's a good shepherd, right? One that gives you all you need to eat, and then you can rest, and then you can eat again. God provides it for us. And so there is no need for complaining, again, contrary to the people of Israel that had food falling from the sky every day, and yet still grumbled and complained every day. Oh, so much like us here in America and our culture, huh? We have so much, but yet there's always this grumbling heart. The Lord is my shepherd. I have plenty of needs. Give me some more. Notice he says he leads me beside quiet waters. Contrary to the common idea of still waters being the only water that the sheep would approach, this is better translated, waters of restfulness. The streams of Israel, and if you understand the context, are not known for rushing waters ever. <laughs> they, might ca- they would never cause any fear. You know, you've heard this before probably. You know, if the water's moving really fast, the sheep won't go up to it. There is no water like that in Israel. Very, very little. So for a shepherd, he would have understood this. The concept here is more associated with the same idea, and it's parallel with the previous idea of rest found in the first half of the verse. Hebrew parallelism, what it does is often it'll say a statement, and then the second statement will help to develop it. Okay? Well, the overall concept in this verse is is that God provides to the point of rest. God provides to the point of rest. So he leads me beside quiet waters or waters of rest would be the idea of he takes me to water where there's plenty of water so I can lay down and rest too. He feeds me and gives me drink so that I can rest. Isn't that what good shepherds do? There's rest with the provisions. So notice the sovereign shepherd also provides his spiritual needs. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. David here appears to apply the metaphor in this verse. His application may be concerning Yahweh's physical care, but most likely I think he's applying Yahweh's shepherding care to his spiritual concerns. In other words, I'm not completely convinced that he's keeping the metaphor going on the whole time. Matter of fact, in a little bit, he's going to abandon the metaphor for another one. But he's using it to explain who God is. So the metaphor is in the background, but now application is made. David explains in the first phrase of the verse that Yahweh restores my soul. This word restores highlights God's sovereign work of restoring people's soul. He is the one who grants both initial repentance through regeneration and ongoing repentance in our lives. This is what the sovereign shepherd does. He restores his sheep. When we fall down, what's he do? He picks us up. When we mess up and sin, what does he do? He restores us. He brings us back. This is what our shepherd does. And we know this, don't we, believers? We know when we mess up. It's almost like we can't run from Him. He, he pursues us, as we will see in a little bit. 
He restores our soul. This idea of spiritual care is developed further in that second little phrase. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. Yahweh guides me in the paths of righteousness. Again, the shepherding concept is more in the background as an illustration of God's sovereign shepherding direction and guidance in the lives of His people. Yahweh is caring and compassionate. He is diligent to bring His people to where they need to be spiritually. As we know from Romans 8, 28-30, like Mark preached on last week, right? It highlights God is all about accomplishing His sovereign plan in the lives of His believers. He will cause them to become conformed to the image of His Son. Why? Because He's the sovereign shepherd. He's going to guide me in paths of righteousness. And when His sheep stray... He will do whatever is necessary to bring them back on the path of righteousness. Because we know, right? Hebrews 12, our Father disciplines us. All of this is all to keep us on the righteous path. Is it perfection? No, but you know it's the direction of a believer's life. It's different. We serve our King, don't we? We follow our Shepherd, don't we? And when we don't follow our Shepherd, we are what? miserable and God does what he does to get us back on that path of righteousness David concludes this exaltation over Yahweh's provision with the purpose of God's provision oh this is so important and this is why I'm convinced that verse 3 is an application more that he's applying it and, and kind of left the metaphor a little bit because he says for his namesake obviously he's talking about God's namesake, right? Why does God guide us? Why does God take us on the, keep us on the path of righteousness? Why does He restore our soul? The answer, for His namesake. The final phrase of this verse reveals the spiritual care and why He does the spiritual care. Now, I want you to take note of this, and it's so important for all of you to get, and this is very important. Listen. Why do I believe that people can't abandon the faith and walk away from the faith if they're genuine believers? Why? Answer, because God. God is all about His name. If we say that people can be born again and then leave the faith and never come back, what are we saying? We're saying God can't keep a sheep. (laughs) God can't complete His work. And that is to blaspheme God. Because God is a good shepherd. And He always guides and He always leads. And He always restores. So when we fall down, that miserable feeling within our soul that causes us to run back to Christ and beg Him to forgive us, that is because of His namesake. (laughs) The Spirit works in people. Why? For God's namesake. You wear the name Christian. God's going to make sure that you look like the Christian that you are. Or He will expose you. Don't we see that all the time, don't we? Exposures constantly happening. People that say they're Christians, but... Woo, let me show you who you really are. 
Why? Because God's name matters. Yahweh's name is at stake. So David's confidence is rooted in his understanding that God will glorify himself. Therefore, God will work in David. And he has confidence in that. I love how confident David is. <laughs> Don't you? I mean, you read the stories of David and you're like, man, this guy. Bold and courageous, isn't he? Why? Not because of himself. Not because of how strong he holds, but because of how he knows his shepherd holds him. And will work. This is the kind of faith I want. How about you? I want to trust God this way. Notice he, second, trusts in God's protection. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Notice David starts with the conditional circumstance. He gives the condition for trust. He says, literally this could be translated, even if I were to walk through the valley of darkness. That's how you could translate that. At this point, David turns his attention completely on Yahweh. And again, he moves from third person at this point in description of, of Yahweh, he, 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 to you, you will see. And he begins to address Yahweh directly in worship. In this verse, there's a hypothetical circumstance given to illustrate David's confidence in his shepherd king. The conditional statement gives a a, a setting that would produce um, fear in most people. Even if I were to walk through the valley of darkness, the circumstances facing no less than some very evil situations or circumstances. It could point to death, as many translate the verse, valley of the shadow of death, right? But it could be anything... Ultimately, it, I, I would see it more broadly. Anything where darkness is around. Anytime when you're in a place where evil could come at you. Ultimately to death. Even if I walk in a very scary place, in a sense. In a place where sin is rampant. In a place where sin is dominant. In a place where my life is at risk. In a place where my... Life and my spiritual life is at risk. Even though I walk through that, even if I should go through that, I do not fear, is what he says. A commitment of trust. I do not fear. David's commitment is emphatic. He will by no means enter into, the sta into a state of fear. He will not become afraid, no matter how dark and scary the circumstances get. He exclaims, I do not fear evil, even in these dark places and dark circumstances. Again, David's confidence is not in himself, but in the Lord. He knows the good shepherd will care for him, and so he says, I do not fear. In fact, David explains the cause of his trust in the next powerful title, a little phrase. Notice it says, for you are with me. <laughs> oh, you, do you understand how many times this little phrase, for you are with me or with me, is found in the Old Testament and even the New Testament? It's like all oh, through the Bible. 
In your Bible reading, look for that. God is with you. Or we'll see it in a couple weeks when I do, or maybe next week. Joshua 1. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God is with you. Why? What's it there? Why is it important? Again, as we think back over David's life, we can see David had a good understanding of God's sovereign care for him, didn't he? David was a shepherd who had killed a lion and a bear while guarding the sheep. I don't know about you guys, but I don't know of many people that have killed a lion and a bear with a stick in his hands. David was a shepherd who killed a nine-foot-tall Goliath that was mocking the God of Israel. Unbelievable, right? Probably a teenager at the time. David had slew countless enemies of God. Saul kills his thousands. David kills his ten thousands. Ten thousand? That's not just words or numbers just saying a lot. That's ten thousands. Lots. David had also survived a coup by his son Absalom. And remember, when Saul before was trying to kill him several times, God took care of him and shepherded him. Evil was after him. His son was after him. Saul was after him. Goliath was after him. And yet, he trusted. He knew God was his shepherd. David understood God's presence with with him. And it guaranteed victory, even in the most difficult circumstances. David got the biblical concept. Glory for God through following God in all circumstances. He trusted God to preserve him. David got it, didn't he? God is with me, so nothing can overcome me. God was not only ruling over David. God was not only seeing everything that David was going through. God was not only interceding for David. God was with him. This concept is what Jesus highlights in John 15 when he told his disciples to abide in him. Dwell in me. Receive me. Enjoy me. Be satisfied with me. Look over at John 15. You can see this shepherd's just talking. He explains, uses a different metaphor, but the concept's obvious. And again, Yahweh is my shepherd. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God, so it makes sense, doesn't it? Not real complicated. Are we saying Psalm 23, as some uh, wrong hermeneutics say, is giving a... A point forward to Jesus in and, and, and a prophetic way? No. We're just saying that because Yahweh is my shepherd and Jesus is God, obviously, He's our shepherd, right? Look how He talks. He says, Jesus says, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now we're on to a different metaphor. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, dwell in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. 
for apart from me you can do nothing. As we understand that God is with us, we understand that He is sovereignly working in us and for us and through us, all for His glory and His namesake, we trust Him, don't we? No matter what the circumstances, we trust Him. No matter what comes at us. Oh, friends, David got it. His sovereign shepherd was with him. So his circumstances were never too overwhelming. Not because he was bigger and stronger or wiser than the enemies that came against him. But because God was bigger and stronger and wiser than anything that was coming against him. The true believer needs to know fruit is possible in every circumstance because God is with us. Do you understand, folks? That is just an amazing thought. There is no circumstance in your life that you can't glorify and honor God. None. No matter how bad it is. Why? Well, because I'm just this really smart, wise, strong guy. No. No. But because the all-knowing all-powerful, all-seeing, all-sovereign, God is with me. That's it. He's with me. This is good stuff, isn't it? I've been meditating on this for two weeks and I couldn't wait to preach it to you. God is good, isn't He? We trust Him. For He is with us. Literally, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And again, this is using that metaphor. The rod was the shepherd's weapon of protection. It was usually a short and deadly stick that was used to defend the sheep from any kind of harmful attack from humans or animals. The staff was that longer crook-like instrument used to guide the sheep and to help keep them away from danger and out of difficult circumstances. So, did David have a specific spiritual instrument in mind that God had, the rod and the staff. Oh, this is where uh, uh, hermeneutics becomes uh, uh, a lesson in futility. When people start attributing, okay, well, we've got a rod, so that means it's this. And the staff is the spirit. And, uh, you know, the rod is the church. No, 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 it stopped. Okay, it stopped. All he was saying is, is this is a metaphor. God takes care of us. And he uses instruments to do it. So now, what are some instruments that he used? Well, he uses the body. He uses the word. He uses the spirit. Yes, he's with us. But be careful of saying that rod David had in his mind, the word of God. Be careful, okay? But applicationally, we know that, right? He uses instruments to guide us. Again, at this point in the psalm, David is directly exalting Yahweh. He's saying, you providentially care for me. David is in all-out worship at this point in the psalm. And his confidence and trust in God is showing forth, isn't it? This was David's Joshua 24 moment, where Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. 
That's what he's saying in effect. Or Peter and John's Acts 4, 19-20 moment where they said, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the drudge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We're going to stand and we're going to proclaim the truth because we know God is with us. We will not fear, ladies and gentlemen. We will not fear despite our whole world crumbles around us, correct? If the culture gets worse, we will not fear. Why? Because we know our shepherd is with us. The sovereign God is still in control of this world. Just as Job knew, right? Finally, we see the third illustration, delight in God's preservation. Now again, here he changes to a different metaphor. And this is most likely talking about a host as a metaphor, a host of a banquet. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. You can almost feel David's joy as he breaks out in total euphoria. (laughs) This new metaphor describing God's provision for him and his preservation of him all the way to the end, to the victory banquet. In this case, it is a promise of preservation to the end. A victory was coming. He delighted in the fact that God provides victories. And ultimately, God will provide the final victory in that day when we stand before Him and we are with Him and we enjoy Him forever. But notice there is the promise of a victory banquet. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. David now turns to another metaphor to illustrate the sovereign's care for him. He leaves the shepherd metaphor for the royal host metaphor. A host of a banquet. The host could be specifically a a royal or a kingly host in light of the level of hospitality that's mentioned in the verse. David again exalts Yahweh directly for preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This appearance appears to be a metaphorical allusion to this great victory banquet that is hosted in the presence of David's enemies. These victory banquets were often seen at the conclusion of battles. The spoils were awarded formally to their victors in public. It was almost like we get together and we put the enemies out there and let me show you, we won, you lost. Let's have a party. (laughs) What we have here, David is saying, Yahweh, host, that is the host of the banquet, is the host of the victory banquet for David. Again, this is possible only because God is in sovereign control and He's guaranteed victory. Just like we saw in Romans chapter 8 last week. The glorified is past tense, even though it hasn't happened yet. Why? Because it's a guarantee. God gives victory banquets. And He tells that He's going to give victory banquets. And we can trust in Him. Why? Because He's sovereign. He's the sovereign host. And the sovereign shepherd. And the perks of the banquet are seen here. You anointed my head with oil. Literally, when you went to a banquet, they would, they would pour oil on your head. And some of you are like, I don't want oil on my head. Well, if you lived in that culture with not taking near as many baths as we did, 
Oil was a good thing. <laughs> it was refreshing and cleaning. <laughs> and you wanted it. Remember, Jesus had probably alluded to this in 746 of Luke, where he said, You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. He was co- confronting the Pharisee, remember? This is probably the same thing. Again, this is seen to, to an even greater degree for all of us who trust in Christ as our sovereign Lord. He promises us an inheritance, doesn't he? Oh, beloved, do you understand what the promises of the inheritance are? Now, that's a victory banquet. I can't wait to go to that banquet. How about you? And it is a promise. It is a guarantee. We will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb because He is our sovereign host and our sovereign shepherd. And then we see the prosperity of the victory banquet. My cup overflows. This means there will be more than enough drink for the celebration. The picture is a banquet that is overflowing with blessings from Yahweh. There is a glimpse into the glory because of the sovereign shepherd. We see it here. All of this points to the promise of glory to come. It guaranteed because Yahweh is sovereign. He is where David has all his confidence. Now David ends the psalm and we'll conclude with this. Again with that focus on Yahweh. Almost in a humble way he just now doesn't. He he concludes with mentioning his name but he focuses in on the shepherd. And just proclaiming the glories the conclusion to the Sovereign Shepherd's relationship. The Sovereign Shepherd will pursue His own into eternity, and they will in turn always return to Him. We see it. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. David now turns back to that third person address. Actually, David turns from a direct address, you, Yahweh, to a description of Yahweh again. Surely goodness and loyal love will pursue me all the days of my life. You see that goodness and mercy, that's actually hesed. The second word, that is loyal love. And it's not shall follow, but it it's it was better translated, shall pursue. Oh, and it's an emphatic thing. It's so wonderful here. It's literally that God's goodness and his loyal love will pursue me to the end. Oh, this is this is amazing, isn't it? It's as if he's coming after us with his goodness. He's coming after us with his loyal love. He's chasing us. Oh, I love you. Come here. Oh, I love you. Let me give it to you. Let me give you my glory. Let you be satisfied with me. Oh, man, what a God, right? Do you understand this is the God that loves you? You who have trusted in Christ, He pursues you. You can't get away from Him. Instead of saying Yahweh will pursue Him, David states the attributes perfectly characterizing Yahweh. Goodness, loyal love will pursue me all the days of my life. And then God's own will always return to the presence of the Lord forever. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord, Yahweh, forever. The psalm concludes with a commitment from David. And I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. The commitment is literally to return continuously to the tabernacle of the Lord. 
There was no temple at the time of David. So David was most likely referring to the tabernacle here. Yet at the same time, in a more general sense, David was emphasizing his continual return to the presence of the Lord. Now, listen to me closely. Just because he knew God was with him, he also knew that there was a fellowship, a participation in that abiding presence that had to be continually pursued. Listen, just knowing that God is with you is not enough. You must enjoy and delight in His presence. Knowing that God is pursuing us reminds us of who He is and makes us want to what? Worship and dwell with Him more. I want more of God. How about you? It's really the only thing I need, right? Is Him. And guess what He said? I gave it to you. That's all we need is Him. And yet there's this constant in our hearts that we're going to have to continue to do what? Say no to self and say yes to Him. I want you more. Give me more. I want more of you. I've got to return to the tabernacle. I've got to return to the presence of God constantly. But I can turn, I always return to Him. Why? Because I know who He is. And it's just like this upward spiral that goes into eternity and to glory. I know Him, and I pursue Him more. And as I pursue Him more, He shows me more of Himself through His Word. And then I do what? I pursue Him even more. And everything becomes dim. The whole world just kind of goes away. And it's as if I say, I've got you. There's nothing else I need. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Is He your shepherd? Have you turned to Him? Do you delight in Him? Let's pray. Father, You are so good to us. What a picture of your glory and your grace. To know that your goodness and your loyal love pursued us all the way to the cross. This is a glorious truth. For we know that the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. And for this, we will worship you for eternity You are all satisfying. There is nothing in this world that we need. We have you. And we are satisfied with you. You provide all that we need. You persevere us to the end. And you protect us from the enemy. You are our sovereign shepherd. We trust you. We pray this in Our master's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.